Hello, and welcome to 13, the podcast that asks questions of Colgate University community members. I am your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming to the program the Charles A. Dana Professor of Psychological and Brain Sciences, Rebecca Shiner, and her husband, Associate University Chaplain and Catholic Minister, Mark Shiner, or Deacon Mark Shiner. We also have on today's program, Samay Gupta, a member of the class of 2024, uh, who was also a participant in a recent extended study course in which members traveled to Iceland. And um, we'll talk about that here in a minute. Uh, but I want to give a little bit of background here for Professor Shiner. Um, Professor Rebecca Shiner is a clinical psychologist who specializes in working with children, adolescents, adults, and families. Her research is focused on personality development in those populations, and she has investigated stability and change in personality traits and the influence of personality on positive life outcomes and psychological disorders. Professor Shiner earned her bachelor's degree from Haverford College and her PhD from the University of Minnesota, and she completed her clinical psychology internship at the University of Rochester Medical Center. Deacon Mark Shiner is Colgate's Catholic chaplain, and both Rebecca and Mark are founding members of Colgate's Residential Commons system, having served as the inaugural directors of the Chaconi Commons. So welcome, one and all, to the show. Thanks. We're happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We're happy to have you. So I'm interested in learning a bit about a course that you taught last semester, Rebecca, and I believe it's called The Good Life, Perspectives from psychological science. So tell me about The Good Life. Talk about, um, I guess, the genesis, your idea behind the class. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, we'll start there. Okay, sounds good. Uh, so all professors at Colgate teach first-year seminars, or nearly all of them do. And these are courses that uh, um, introduce students to being students at Colgate. And so I had to develop one of those courses. And as you mentioned, my specialty is in clinical psychology. So with a focus on um, personality. But I didn't think that that was a great topic to introduce new students to Colgate. The topic of how everything can go wrong psychologically with the person did not seem like an inspiring way to kick off one's college career. So um, in the year, I think around maybe 2001, I decided that my fresher seminar was going to be about this newly developed field called positive psychology that focuses on topics that we normally associate with the good life. So topics like happiness and well-being and the role of relationships um, and health and spirituality in living a good life. Um, so I've been teaching the course for all of that time since then, um, but this time I decided to offer it as a um, sophomore residential seminar class, which is part of a special program um, that is designed to bring some of Colgate's best sophomores into community to take a class together um, and then to have a quarter credit class that builds on that class and then finally to go on a trip that is related to the theme of the course. Okay. And that course was broken into three sections, right? Can you talk about those three sections? Oh, okay. So the main, yeah, the main course was was split into three sections. So the course is what's called a scientific perspectives course. That's a core course at Colgate that is um, designed to introduce students to thinking about the use of the scientific methods to answer interesting questions and to also apply that kind of scientific thinking to a societally important issue. 
Um, and so the first part of the course was designed to help students understand how we go about studying these potentially nebulous topics like happiness and meaning um, in an empirical way. Um, I would say about half the students in the course are psychology majors, so they had a strong grounding in how psychologists do that kind of work. Um, but about half the students were not, and so I had to bring everyone up to speed quickly on how we study these things empirically. Hmm. Then the second big part of the course was really just focus on the content of what we know about these kinds of topics. So we talked, for example, about some things that um, make people happier and are influenced by their happiness. So, for example, um, good work and relationships and health would be those kinds of topics. Then we talked about more uh, broad societal topics like the influence of money and culture on well-being and then more internal processes that affect our well-being uh, for example, the way that we think about things, the way that we go about making decisions. And then finally, the last part of the class was focused on giving the students a hands-on um, practice with developing their own empirical study related to the topics of the course. Mm -hmm. So I walked them through the entire process of how you do a literature review, how you develop a study, how you select measures, and how you um, go about testing your hypotheses. So the students did presentations um, and and then wrote research papers. And then in the final part of the course, we talked about Iceland uh, to get ourselves ready for the course that was about to happen right after finals. So why Iceland? So Iceland is among the happiest countries in the world. There are, for the last decade or so, there have been these large-scale international surveys of people's daily positive emotions, negative emotions, and sense of satisfaction with their lives. And Iceland typically ranks about fourth on those ratings um, and is the most consistent uh, in being highly ranked across lots of different measures of well-being. In addition, uh, Mark and I love Iceland, and we Mark is pretty much ready to move there. Um, <laughs> we've been on there twice for our family vacations, so... Uh, it's a place that we know well, and I was really excited to introduce students to what it is that makes Icelanders so happy. Hmm. So, man, I'm wondering your uh, your study. What what were you looking at? Uh, so the the project that I came up with looked at immigration and how it, that correlates with happiness, and um, that sort of came from like a my personal experience being an international student thinking about immigrating to the U.S. And uh, my study was focused on looking at whether people's residential choices, um, like if immigrants choose to live in immigrant-rich neighborhoods or non-immigrant-rich neighborhoods, whether that has an effect on people's happiness or not. Um, because, uh, well, personally, I've seen sort of these immigrant neighborhoods forming, like whenever I come to visit my relatives in the U.S., um, all of them live in neighborhoods which are mostly Indian. And so... Um, I was just curious to see whether that sort of is a hindrance hmm. to like broader, like a sense of belonging uh, within like the new country that you move to. Um, and I, th I thought that the whole process of developing that research proposal, even though I'm not a psychology major, I thought that was very helpful um, simply because the whole, the research presentation and sort of that iterative process of like going back, evaluating everything that you're putting into your proposal was really helped me with like critical thinking skills. And um, it also made me far more reflective academically 
Um, I don't think most classes don't sort of ingrain that skill in you where you sort of go back, look at your work and find flaws. But I think the research proposal process was really helpful in that. What did you find? Well, um, I found out that I was far more competent than I thought I was going to be. Um, but then again, there's there's just small technicalities that you seem that you often forget, like when you're focusing on like the bigger picture. For for instance, in my study, um, one of the things that I forgot to sort of put in there was that the participants need to know how to speak English because that could be like a barrier to them sort of having a sense of belonging in an English speaking country. Um, and I th again, I was too focused on like the bigger picture, seeing like the larger correlations to like focus on the finer technical details. Um, but then again, the whole research uh, presentation process was very helpful in that because I was able to get feedback from um, Professor Shiner and also my peers who, well, actually this was pointed out by my peers. So I thought that was very helpful. And did you conduct the, the research as well? Did you do the survey? and? Uh, no, so that wasn't part of the process. Gotcha. Just we, building it. It was just building it. But I am uh, looking into sort of developing that and fleshing that out into an actual research project nice. with a professor in the econ department. And what made you interested in this class in particular? Uh, so I had taken intro to psychology and I found it fascinating. Um, it was it was just kind of profound how you can sort of predict and study human behavior to like the degree that the field of psychology has just because I thought, well, human beings are just unpredictable. Um, but then again, it was very interesting for me to see how like sort of empirically you can say a lot about what really makes human beings tick. And um, so that was my initial motivation. I was also drawn to just the sophomore residential seminar program as on the whole. Um, I really like the idea of sort of living with the people that I'm taking the class with and then traveling with them. Um, I made some very close friends in the process. And so it just, it was just a very well packaged deal. Hmm. How many, how many people uh, were in your, in your group? There were 17 of us. So it was a relatively larger group for traveling to Iceland, but it was great because I was able to include such uh, an interesting group of students. Nice. And, uh, you know, the class obviously has its papers. It's got, you know, the midterm and everything. Um, curious about what some of the other things that students were learning in the class, in, in particularly in, in preparation for the trip. Yeah. So I think in preparation for the trip, we did spend quite a bit of time talking about cross-cultural differences in happiness and well-being. Um, we did that not specifically focused on Iceland at first, but more generally really trying to tease out what is it that makes some cultures happier and report higher levels of well-being than other cultures. Um, and this is also relevant to the topic of money. There's been a ton of research on whether wealthier countries are happier on average than poorer countries. And in fact, they are, but up only to a certain point. Once people's more basic needs are met uh, in terms of their needs for shelter, for safety, food, etc., then there are there's a whole array of other factors that come into play in terms of what um, predicts happiness within that culture. So, for example, cultures that are more inclusive, especially of groups that tend to be more marginalized, tend to be happier than those that that are less inclusive. Um, countries with a stronger focus on family and community tend to be happier. 
Um, and to some extent, um, the happiest countries in the world are quite non-religious, um, and yet um, religion does predict happiness for certain um, countries, particularly in Latin America. So we talked about these kind of interesting cultural factors that are really important. Uh, and then at the end of the course, as I mentioned right before the trip, we talked about what is it about Iceland that makes Icelanders especially happy. Um, and I think then when we were on the trip, I think we ended up um, getting to see a lot of that mm. sort of lived out in front of us. Yeah, And if I may add, like, uh, yeah. I think we were always thinking about Iceland when we were talking about things in class. Um, for example, when we covered nature and happiness, we talked about how nature is sort of, uh, well, the more time you spend in nature, the ha more uh, the happier you tend to be just because nature sort of, sort of instills this sense of awe in you. And um, I think we had a discussion in class where we were sort of talking about how that might also be a, uh, a reason why Icelanders um, tend to be happier is because they're very attached to their natural surroundings and they get to spend so much time in like these absolutely breathtaking, uh, breathtaking environments. You mentioned Iceland was like number four consistently. Who's number mm -hmm. one? Denmark. Really? Yeah. Now why not go to Denmark? Well, I mean, if you were choosing between Denmark and Iceland, which uh, would you pick? That's a good answer. <laughs> With apologies to our Danish listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the sites, I mean, yeah. I saw some photos from the trip, obviously. They're, they're pretty spectacular. Yeah, I, I mean, I think one advantage of, of Iceland is is that there is both a feeling of it being, uh, I guess, civilized and, and you know, established, but also there's just a, a wildness to the feel of the place, you know, um, that you don't have to worry about the people harming you in any way, but you do actually have to be mindful of the earth while you're there because there might be a volcano or an earthquake or a, a sneaker wave that comes up at the beach or whatever. So, you know, there's a, there's a mindfulness. And I think that that awe tr translates there into a respect, uh, uh, you know, and a, and a deep kind of love for, uh, for the place and for, for nature. And I think that, I mean, that's one of the ways in which Iceland is, um, I don't know, I think probably more appealing as a destination for this sort of thing is that, you know, you just, you are entering into this place. I mean, for the first 30 miles after you get out of the airport, it basically looks like you've landed on the moon. You know, it's just, just lava fields and mountains in the distance. And, you know, you really, you don't feel like you're... Uh, on Earth. On this planet, especially, you know, if there's like the mist and everything that is yeah. often there. Yeah, it's really something else. Yeah, it was important to me that that the whole trip had a sense of adventure to it and a sense of pursuing novelty because I think that novelty um, is an important part of growing as a person and is is a really important part of living a good life mm. is this kind of openness to trying new things. And so I wanted to go to a place that felt especially adventurous. So walk me through some of the things you folks did in Iceland. I guess, how did you explore this kind of happiness in Iceland? Well, uh, I mean, in terms of the structure of the trip, we spent the first day and a half in Reykjavik, which is the capital city of Iceland, just to help all of us have a strong foundation and a grounding in the history and more of the culture of the place um, before setting out. So during that first part of the trip, 
Um, we went to the National History Museum of Iceland, uh, which I think gave all of us a strong sense of this really interesting place that um, in many ways has not was not modernized until relatively recently. Uh, while we were in Reykjavik, we also met with a musician friend, a, a drummer friend of Mark's, um, so that we could talk to him about his perspectives on the arts in Iceland and just more generally his thoughts about why Icelanders are so happy. Then the rest of the trip really was spent adventuring. So we, we uh, worked with a, an amazing tour company called Midgard Adventures, and I worked closely with them in the months leading up to the trip, really working out the schedule. Um, so I don't know if, if one of the two of you would like to talk a little bit about some of the things we did with Midgard. Uh, sure, I, I, I can um, sort of jump in. Uh, so with when we got to Midgard, um, I think all the students were just kind of amazed as to like how nice the place was. Um, what do you mean by nice? It's just pretty? It, well, it was, well, yes. Uh, first of all, it was very pretty. It's um, completely, like, you feel like you're in the wilderness, even though you're not, but you feel like you are. Like, um, uh, there was a rooftop hot tub there, which, um, well, most of the students, I think, spent 80% of their time there. Um, <laughs> but when when you went up there, all you could see was just horses and fields and, the, and mountains in the distance, and it was just something that... Well, at least personally, I'd never felt that way before. Um, and so just being in that sort of environment um, while we were not doing our adventure stuff was very helpful because it sort of put you in that sort of mood to, like, explore. Um, and then when we uh, when we started doing our activities, we um, I think on the first day, we explored a bunch of waterfalls and we went for a glacier hike, um, which was very fascinating. Um because you, we also got a very. I, I thought like the trip was also a lesson in um, geography slash geology, because I learned so much about how um, the climate works in Iceland, and it's fascinating. Um, we went to a couple of places where there used to be very very large bodies of water, which are completely dried up. Um, we also went to uh, this place called Thorsmork, uh, which is in the Highlands. Um, I'm going to start butchering names, so I'm yeah. just going <laughs> to pass it off to uh, Mr. Shiner. And then I'll butcher yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah uh, if, again, I don't remember the places or the names of the places, so I don't want to. Yeah. Well, we hiked We hiked through a canyon. We hiked up a, a mountain there. We, we're also on uh, the, it's only accessible via uh, vehicles that they call super jeeps, which are not all jeeps, uh, but they are specially equipped that the exhaust is is uh, pretty high. The wheels are pretty big. And so it enables them to go through uh, rivers without, uh, you know, without the engines stalling out and snorkel. Yeah, basically. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. And and so the you know, what this means is is in a lot of the highlands, they're just there really aren't roads or when there are roads, there aren't any bridges. Mm. So, you know, and you're constantly dealing with glacial runoff and all of this sort of stuff. So, so you constantly have, uh, you know, changing shapes of, of uh, rivers and sometimes they're deeper one day and lower the next. And, uh, you know, so you have to take these super Jeeps in and, uh, you know, we got there and discovered one of the things that we were that we were doing, which they hadn't told us, was going through a canyon that was featured in a 21 Pilots uh, 
music video and one of the students was a huge fan of 21 pilots and this video, you know, and so she was recreating all the, you know, all the scenes from the, from the video. And that was, yeah, that was a riot. So yeah. So we did a lot of stuff in Thor's Mork. That was, that was, you know, we had a bonfire, uh, we had all this just incredibly beautiful, uh, stuff where you were just way away from everything that mm. felt like civilization. And that, that was remarkable. And, we also did the. We went to the uh, the main island in, of the Westman Islands, which is a little chain of islands, uh, volcanic islands south of uh, south of the main uh, main body of Iceland. Um, and we also went out to the Reykjanes Peninsula, which is the peninsula that's that's not really as much on the tourist map, even though it's where the plane is. I mean, the Blue Lagoon is there, which is probably Iceland's most famous uh, most famous tourist attraction. Uh, but there are a lot of other things out there, uh, you know, geothermal area and, uh, you know, bl and, uh, black sand beaches and all kinds of, you know, really, really cool mm. stuff that we got to do out there as well. Unless you think that we were just touring and there was no intellectual component <laughs> to all of this, I, I would rush in to say that um, I we really tried, Mark and I, I think, tried to make sure that there were a lot of discussions about what it is that we were learning um, we had an, a particularly exceptional tour guide, mm. um, an Icelander named Magnus, who ended up being with our group. Um, he was a young man, um, only you know about five years older than than the students, um, but someone who I think has really thought deeply about why Icelanders are so happy. Um, so we were able to have fantastic conversations um, every day, and sometimes in a more kind of deliberate way about how what we were seeing was tying in to the kinds of themes that we had talked about in the course. So I guess what made me especially happy was that there was a nice combination of actually living out some of the themes of the course in terms of pursuing novelty, pursuing that sense of awe, kind of deep engagement with nature, and deep engagement in community within the community of the course. And then that was combined with more explicit conversations about the things we were seeing and observing and how those um, things that we were seeing um, fit, sort of fit in with, with the themes of the course itself. So what stood out uh, among those things that you did see? Were there things that kind of surprised you as you were going through the country, things that you hadn't seen before, or just certain kind of interactions that you just didn't see on the day-to-day -day basis in Hamilton, which was once named one of the happiest places, uh, happiest cities in America, or friendliest it was, not happy. It was friendliest, yeah. Friendliest. <laughs> well, I don't know if that translates to happiness. Yeah. So. Uh, well, uh, definitely the museum visits, I thought, were quite, well, at least for me, were quite intellectually stimulating with regards to the course, um, just because you wouldn't expect a country that happy to have had such a turbulent history. Um, but it actually connected very well with something that we learned in class, which was people who go through more adversity um, savor things in life more. Uh, and so when we went to the National History Museum, uh, we were able to see that like Iceland was always ravaged by like poor na natural conditions and then also sort of invasions from um, foreign countries. And so they had a very rough time until sort of the middle of the 20th century and um, the other museum that we went to, which was um, on the Vestman Island that we went uh, went to, it was it sort of detailed the history of a volcanic eruption that happened there. Um, 
about 50 years ago, uh, which pretty much wiped out the entire town. And uh, now if you were to visit it, you wouldn't even realize that something like that had happened. So it's quite remarkable how resilient um, the people of Iceland are and how they've sort of um, learned to adapt to the difficult conditions. Um, so like, I, I personally remember like conversations that I was having with fellow students about like how crummy the weather was. And then we talked about that with Magnus again, who I shout out to him. Absolute amazing. Like he's probably the best tour guide we could have asked for. Um, but when we talked to him, he was just like, well, we, we just embrace it. Um, we don't care if there's like two feet of snow. Well, if there's two feet of snow, there's two feet of snow. We find a way around it. Um, and more importantly, we learn to enjoy when there isn't bad weather. Like, um, like the, just the happiness that I saw on Magnus's face when he, when he saw that it was, it wasn't going to be raining, um, when we were going out was just, it was very, very, um, impactful to me. I was kind of stunned by the degree to which Icelanders were enthusiastic about talking about this subject. You know, if you started asking them about, uh, you know, or if they just found out what uh, what we were there for, they would immediately jump in and say, well, I think this, or, you know, I, I don't know if we're really so happy or, you know, the, and there were, there were always these kinds of, uh, there's an openness to these conversations. Mm. That was really, I thought really remarkable. And I think it, I think it helped with the, the group too, because all of a sudden, you know, everyone seemed to have an easy time, uh, talking. Also, um, another thing that surprised me was that everyone there or at least everyone that we encountered, had a sense of humor, huh. which isn't a very common thing that you see here. Um, well, people are nice, but they're not necessarily funny. Um, but I thought that that was, that was, well, at least it made the trip very enjoyable for us because like, pretty much everyone we met was funny and uh, they weren't afraid to like sort of self-deprecate. And, so, um, and I think that really, it gave us very valuable insights into why these people are very happy. It's because they don't take life very Seriously, I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that they know the things that are important, and they don't think take things that are aren't important as, very seriously. How do those happiness surveys work? I mean, everybody says, "Well, I've never been surveyed." Well, obviously, but mm-hmm. you know, you only need a small portion of the population to do a survey. Uh, is it just these? Is there a, an entity that does these? just random phone calls to people in countries or how, how does it work? Yeah, they, there's, it's quite a, there's quite a sophisticated method. So the world happy there, there, let me clarify. There's the world happiness report. And then there's a whole range of just regular old psychology research that's addressing these kinds of topics, but the world happiness report, which I think is what you're referring to um, has been going on since about 2010 And um, they measure happiness in several different ways, but they do it very briefly because they're trying to get as large a sample size as possible. So the shorter you make the survey, the more participation you get. So one of the the questions that they ask is um, people's perception of um, whether they're living sort of the best possible life or the worst possible life. And they actually show them a ladder that is called the Cantrell scale that goes from one to 10 with rungs on it. And then people have to mark on those rungs um, going, going from the worst to the best possible life where they think that their lives fall. And the happiness country, happiest countries are typically somewhere in the kind of seven range, um, which is interesting because it mm. suggests that, that maybe there's an upper limit on how sort of on average how happy people may report 
that they are. Um, they also ask people about the level of positive and negative emotions that they experienced the day before. Um, and interestingly, they're starting to also measure people's sense of kind of peacefulness rather than just focusing on happiness. Because as it turns out, for a lot of people around the world, they're more invested in having a sense of having a peaceful life rather than just having a happy one. Hmm. Interesting. And Mark, curious, as uh, was there a, a discussion, I presume, at some point on the religious aspect of Iceland and how that might play into it or, or lack thereof, whatever, you know? Whatever yeah. that may be. Well, Saman and I had a very long conversation in the uh, in the Museum of National Museum of Iceland about uh, you know about the Christianization of of Iceland and about uh, you know what it meant when the Protestant Reformation came and 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 then also how that that stuff all you know played out in uh, you know how how it changes when you move to the American context and things like that. Um, I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing for me as a as a chaplain, um, and it's a it's a thing that um, that I I find uh, both challenging and beautiful. You know, about being there is uh, there's very low church attendance. Uh, it's on the decline. It's especially on the decline in, um, in among young people. Uh, it's become becoming very uh, re- you know the, their sta- their state religion is is Lutheranism. Uh, Catholicism uh, is uh, is mostly almost entirely an immigrant uh, religion. There, there's there, um, you know, of the of the masses at the cathedral in Reykjavik, at the Catholic cathedral in Reykjavik. Um, I think one of them is. I, I you'd have to confirm this, but um, you know, most of the masses are either in uh, Polish or English, you know, because that's you know who is who's there. Um, so, so it's an intriguing thing because in a lot of ways, the Icelanders have internalized so much of the stuff that you would think of as, uh, as, you know, kind of Christian values, uh, you know, at least that's the kind of things that we would, that we would talk about, you know, they have a deep, uh, they have deep concerns for, for justice and fairness, uh, deep concerns, uh, for, you know, the community well-being, uh, Deep concern for you know, trying to have uh, clean government, uh, you know, and uh, these sorts of things. Uh, care for the vulnerable in their in their population, you know. So there are all of these uh, sorts of things um, that I think religion strives for. But be- and because of the particular history of Iceland, you know, they 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 became officially or publicly Christian around the year one thousand. Uh, but there was never an insistence that people practice Christianity within their homes at that time, and so there was a there's a sort of less of a solid uh, missionary kind of missionary inspired uh, you know commitment to the to religion. But then at the time they were Vikings, you know, and they were they they were not peaceful people in you know around the year one thousand. Uh, so it's I mean to me it's intriguing. The idea of like, if you really do care for people, if you do this stuff, if you don't talk about it, but just do the stuff that that most religions say are is you know would be required for a happy life, as it turns out, it it kind of works, <laughs> um, you know. But we have so many so many challenges 
uh, in the United States that they that they don't. You know, we have the legacy of slavery, which kind of missed Iceland. You know, I mean, because Iceland was Icelanders were living in dirt huts until the 1930s. Uh, you know, they, there's all these kinds of, of dynamics that developed in, in, you know, in reaction to slavery and, you know, systemic racism in the United States. It just didn't take root there because, you know, well, number one, it was a completely homogenous society. And number two, they weren't just participating in any of that stuff. So it's like, what happens in a place where that whole big historical thing that's brewing all around them doesn't come home? And, you know, and so you can look at this stuff. It's like, like the control group. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, you know, you don't want to. They have a lot in common with the United States, which is interesting, but without some of those more difficult aspects of our history. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's one of the things. I I wouldn't want to overstate that issue. Yeah. But you know, but I mean, I, you know, the, um, you know, a number of a number of bloggers and writers, like expats from you know from the United States who've gone there, have said that the Icelanders are curious about them, you know, that they, they ask a lot of questions and stuff, but that they never feel, th- ever, ever feel in danger mm. or, or, or threatened in any way. You know, they just feel like, especially when they're in the small towns, like people will look at them like, wow, I've never seen a person like that before, you know, or something like that, that there's a curiosity uh, that you, that typically yields to, to kindness. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't, again, I don't want to paint an overly rosy picture. I'm sure. confident there's xenophobia and racism there. But um, it's not as kind of baked in as it as it is here. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to just follow up briefly about what Mark said about religiousness of Icelanders because it's something I was really paying attention to this time. I think that religion just sort of or Christianity sort of never took, <laughs> so to speak. And so I think Icelanders, I mean, they were in name Christian, but I I think that they really held on to a lot of the beliefs that they had held during their their long time as Vikings. So even today, if you ask Icelanders if they believe in fairies and, and um, oh, elves or especially. elves rather elves rather, they will they will look a little sheepish, but essentially the answer is yes. Um, yeah, and whereas I think that they, they they're kind of mystified by religiousness as it's practiced hmm. or as it's manifested in the United States. Um, I think that's yeah. something that they don't quite understand. Um, yeah, so that it's it's just interesting having a country that has, as Mark was saying, has sort of all these ingredients that we may think of as being related to religion, but the, where there's not that kind of overt uh, religious practice. Hmm. You talked about, we talked a little bit about community. We talked about the nature. We talked about a little bit about the people. How about how do the arts uh, play into it in in Iceland? You know, music, arts, uh, you know, painting, everything else mm-hmm. that that on the other side of the coin. Yeah, I think Icelanders have a very high per capita rate of involvement in the arts um, a- across a wide range of arts, whether it's writing or music um, or the visual arts. Their um, Icelanders love to write books. I'm trying to remember who was telling us about uh, these kind of uh, gentleman farmers who would just write books and then other Icelanders would be very happy to read them even though they had been written by just sort of obscure um, people sharing their autobiographies. Yeah, But something like 10% of, of all Icelanders will publish a book at some point in there, right, which is an incredible yeah. number. 
And uh, even in a lot of the small towns, like even in surprisingly small towns, what they do is instead of having uh, just strictly school music programs, they have music programs. And our, my friend, uh, the drummer, uh, Haldor Larusen, who, who may be listening, and if he is, hello, uh, mm. and we love you, and <laughs> we can't wait to see you again. Uh, but he runs, he's a principal of a, uh, of a music school in this little town that's out near the airport. And uh, people in the in the na- in the town uh, of any age can sign up for music lessons, and people will come, you know, will come to the school to teach music lessons in this little in this little town, and they'll have you know orchestras for the kids and orchestras for the for the local people, you know, they'll they'll make little concerts in the in the local libraries, you know, the, so you could you could do a library tour of Iceland, <laughs> uh, which is pretty remarkable, you know, and so a lot of I mean. When you when you just look at the number of of of, of albums that has, have been recorded there, uh, it's a, it's astonishing. And mm. and even some famous people, uh, Damon Albarn just put put a put out a record there. And Iceland uh, even encourages foreigners. I, I think this is still the case. But if you if you go to Iceland and uh, have a have a project that you want to film there or record there, the government will uh, will uh, give you. Thirty uh, percent of whatever you spent back, uh, you know, as a way of encouraging people to to come and and work and make you know even outsiders to come and and make art in Iceland. So mm. it's a it's a it's a big deal there, and it's, it's a it's, big part of the culture. It's a huge part of the culture in ways that are. I mean, for me as a musician and and writer, I, I just found it thrilling. You know, it's mm. a beautiful thing. I don't know, did you have any? Yeah, no, I pretty much the. I echo whatever um, Professor Shiner and um, Mr. Shiner said. Uh, I, I I thought it was just astounding because, like, when we were traveling, um, our tour guide Magnus he would just play Icelandic music, and just the the variety of music there. And um, I think the Eurovision Song Contest has really helped with that, um, sort of creating that sort of excitement behind um, producing new music. But I was just astounded because again i come from uh, i'm from india and so we have no shortage of people um and then traveling to this country which is i I think the entirety of that country has less people than my city does and to see just that much art being produced and that the breadth and the depth of art being produced was just quite fascinating for me the the one thing i wanted to add to that too is that i think that there are a lot of people who may have careers where they work in the arts and then they do something else for the t- for a time or they may work in a field that's not the arts but they're still very serious about doing something in the arts outside of work um, in a way that I think is much more common than in the United States. And I think it's partly related to something that we talked about in class, which is that um, Icelanders on average seem to be a little bit less scared of failing they, they are very um, mm. impressed by people who are willing to try something, even if it doesn't work out. So it gives them this kind of flexibility about switching careers or um, try, just trying things that they may fail at without the same kind of fear, I think, that a, a lot of Americans have about that mm. kind of potential failure. Mm. So, for example, again, the, our friend um, Haldor his wife um, actually was an opera singer, um, but has been 
decided to go back to college to study politics and just won an election as a local politician. <laughs> so <laughs> this is not a trajectory I think that you would normally see um, in the United States. So I think that part of this engagement from in the arts comes from some of this willingness to accept failure and to kind of try new things. Um, and to, yeah, just to kind of flexibly move between this career and that career. Also, adding on to that, our tour guide, Magnus, he was also, um, I think, on the first day when we met him, like an hour in, uh, he tells us that he's a boat captain, a pilot, a web developer, a professional gamer, and uh, I think also a mechanic. It sounds like a Colgate student. Yeah. <laughs> you, sure, you sure he hasn't been here? <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's just very impressive how like a lot, they all just have so many skills yeah. um, and not all of those skills are sort of acquired to build a profession. They just do well, things to do things. One last puzzle piece here in the, in the, the I guess the puzzle of happiness mm -hmm. what about food. How, how does that play into it in ice? I don't think of Iceland as having this bounty, but maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know much about the country's food traditions. Oh, well, <laughs> we happen to eat really great food on our trip um, yeah, again, Midgard Adventure got us set up. Yeah. Uh, they, they knew where all the good spots were. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I I think that's probably the first time I've ever gained a little weight in, while traveling in Europe. Uh, almost everywhere else, you know, it's just, but they, uh, yeah, they were, I mean, do you want to tell them about the kinds of things? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I honestly don't think of Iceland as being necessarily a great place for food. Right. I don't well, think that's that that's, yeah, I don't think that that's, um, sort of one of their cultural strengths, um, partly because the access to food is just so much more limited. And so they have to, I mean, obviously the growing season would be very short mm -hmm. and they have to import so much of the food. I mean, I think there's a lot of creativity with the, the kind of food that is available because, for example, fish and lamb are a big part of the cuisine just because that's locally available um but we were very blessed to um eat really wonderful food uh, consistently the entire time that we were there and i think that there is a strong focus among a lot of icelanders in trying to be healthy in what they eat and trying as much as possible to be creative in using local sources for the food yeah, I mean, and a lot of stuff is just really simple. You know, this is typical, uh, you know, yogurt yogurt with granola and those sorts of things that you would find in just about any European hotel is, you know, those are pretty typical, uh, pretty typical breakfast things. You know, they had, you know, getting a, a bowl of soup for lunch, you know, a fish stew or a lamb stew or a lobster stew or something like that. You know, those kinds of things are are pretty built into the system. And then, the, I mean, the, our experience was, I think, a little bit fancier at dinner um, for some of the some of the meals. But um, yeah, the, uh, there's been an explosion of of interest in vegan food, and just in the last, I mean, between 2017 when we went there for the first time and 2022, there's a, the amount of vegan food that is just available everywhere hmm. is astonishing. We had a running joke the entire time that we were eventually going to eat fermented shark, which is Lute, a Lute kind fisk, of right? uh, no. It's it's it's, it's sort different? of it's sort of lutefisk-ish, but it's worse. But worse, oh. yeah. Yeah, oh. there's no lie involved. It's it's um it's called hakarl. I, I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation. Okay. H a k a r l, but uh, it is a fermented Greenland shark, 
and they uh, there are videos uh, where you can look at what the process is. But um, people as as uh, noteworthy as as uh, Anthony Bourdain said that it was the the most disgusting thing he had ever eaten in his life. Uh, the uh, uh, Gordon Ramsay, you know, was similarly sim- had a similar opinion. Uh, you know, people say it. It you know tastes like an old an old mattress uh, soaked oh. in soaked in horrible Tell things. Sorry about the Airbnb. Oh, uh, <laughs> this will probably not make the podcast. But, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> so our our friend told us a story that he uh, he our friend Halder told us a story about one of his friends who lived in Reykjavik and had uh, an apartment that he rented out. Uh, for Airbnb, and some French tourists went to the supermarket to find some of the shark, and they found it and said, "Okay, well, we don't we don't know what to do with it, right?" And the right thing to do is to just take it, put it in a cube, and typically people will eat a tiny cube of it and follow it with a shot of of this kind of aquavit that's like a, a, a it's called Brennevin. It's kind of a miserable version of ouzo. Uh, uh, anyway, but they. <laughs> Uh, the, these French folks didn't know how to how to eat it, and so they figured, well, what do you do with fish? You throw it in a frying pan, and so they they threw it in the frying pan and and tried to cook it up. And apparently, the uh, months later, the apartment is still not habitable. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, oh. Well, I'm curious, uh, you know, to kind of uh, put a bow on things a little bit here, um, Samay, your feelings of happiness afterward did they change after taking this course how you look at the world how you look at your life um i'm curious if it had an impact in any way oh undoubtedly yes um i think before like before like the end of the course and especially the trip to iceland um sort my sort of image of what makes people happy or what i want envision a happy life for me to look like was material success Primarily, um, sure. among other things. Um, and then I went to Iceland and I realized, well, n- none of these people are, well, they all have their basic needs met, um, definitely. But, like, they're not extravagantly wealthy. And none of them are. Um, and it seemed like even the richest people in Iceland weren't rich by American standards. Um, and so, so that begs the question, well, do you really need that much money to be happy? Um, uh and a lot of the things that I enjoyed doing in Iceland um, weren't really didn't have much to do with material possessions anyway. Um, and so I've started thinking about my life in a way where I where I want to focus on a more on like sort of building family, building relationships, sort of being in touch with nature, being in touch with the things I like to do, um, sort of living an Icelandic life, not necessarily in Iceland. Um, in, instead of sort of the traditional, oh, get a job in finance, make as much money as possible, buy a big house, nice car. Um, because I, I've sort of come to realize that that really isn't the recipe to happiness. It's more sort of being in touch with things you like and sort of cultivating relationships um, that give you sort of a deeper sense of satisfaction. Professor Shiner, I'd like to ask, do you, are you planning on teaching this course again? And if you do, would you continue going to Iceland or would you try to look at, or you, would you consider another 
happy country. Another location. Or would you try to go to a very unhappy country? Right, <laughs> just by way of contrast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm definitely going to teach the course again. So the professors who teach in this sophomore residential seminar um, program are expected to teach the courses a second time. Um, but I would want to do it regardless. So I'm hoping... I've been trying to plot out when, but I'm thinking um, maybe not, well, not definitely not next year because Mark and I are taking a study group to Manchester, England in the fall, um, but m perhaps the year after that. I want to go back to Iceland. The only question I would have is the possibility of going in January. So the, <laughs> the normal time for the... Um, sophomore residential seminar programs to take their trips mm -hmm. is in January, um, and there were complications related with going related to going in May. Um, on the other hand, the reason we went in May is because there are only about four hours of sunlight, of daylight in Iceland in January. Um, but I learned during our trip that that there's, it's still possible to go out and do a lot of interesting things, even in the winter. So I don't know. We're, we're going to have to think about this, but but I'm pretty well set on going back to Iceland and and working with Midgard again. All right. I, I, I also think that it might be interesting to go in the winter, um, just because we had sort of the luxury of having good weather when we were there. And um, it might be interesting to see how they remain happy during absolutely miserable weather conditions and no daylight whatsoever mm -hmm. and seeing how that affects their happiness. Mm -hmm. Well, if you want to bring a podcast host on the trip, <laughs> I would <laughs> make the sacrifice. We, uh, we had we can... so many volunteers <laughs> yes, for chaperones on this trip. So many willing volunteers. So we'll definitely keep you in mind. Yeah, but really, I mean, that's, that is a thing. I, I mean, I'd strongly encourage you to go. I didn't strongly encourage any. It, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful a stunningly beautiful place. Um, Surprisingly easy to fly to. Yeah, shorter a, than a flight to five and a half the UK, hours, for example. Five and a half hours from New York, uh, direct. Um, and uh, the Krona right now, um, you know, it, it, relative to the dollar, it makes it a bit less expensive even than we were when we were there in 2018. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, that would increase happiness as well. <laughs> yeah, very much so. That was 13. Uh, thank you all for joining the podcast today. Really appreciate it. T tell your friends and family about the podcast. Uh, if you have any questions that, uh, about th this episode or any of our other episodes in particular, feel free to email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com. <laughs>